Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of uh, Industry Standard uh, with me, Barry Katz. I want to thank you guys for all your notes and your letters and your emails and everything like that. I just got one the other day. It was, it was amazing. The guy says, I've listened to all of your episodes of uh, Industry Standard. I'm thinking to myself, that's like going to be like 25 hours. This guy, does this guy have a life? And what if he's just listen, I had a big job interview. Uh, it's very important to me. Uh, I took my first one. It went well. I listened to them again. I took my second one. And I just want to tell you, I got the job. I am now managing a $1.5 billion real estate portfolio. And I'm going to be in L.A. soon. So um, I'd love to take you out for a cup of coffee. I said, take me out for a cup of coffee. I run back, buy me a fucking Starbucks already with the $1.5 billion account there. But he didn't do it. But anyway, thanks for the letters and, and everything. That's cool. Uh, my guest today uh, is Jason Goldberg, who's a guy that I've known for a while. And he uh, inspires me and intrigues me. And normally I like to tell a cold open of some kind that relates to my guest in some six degrees of separation. This is a two-part story because the first part is the first time I ever met Jason, um, I was working with Dane Cook, and he was at the height of the craziness of all the, the movies and the selling out the arenas. And Jason was at the height of punk, and, uh, you know, with, with Ashton Kutcher, and, and he was an incredible force. You know, he was just a force of nature and he kept calling wanting Dane to do punk and for some reason uh you know at the time there's certain artists that uh 
at certain points in their lives where they're afraid to show themselves a part of themselves that's that 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 will make them seem vulnerable or make them seem just you know more human and regular to everybody else and at that point in time Dane didn't have a lot of trust or faith in in anything because a lot the internet which was so great at building him up he was just as astute to know that the internet could just as easily knock him down and uh like most things in this business and so Jason so persistent and so aggressive he was not going to stop until he got Dane to do punked or any kind of thing like that. But what happened before that is they arranged an episode where they punked Dane with his friend Robert Kelly. And uh, it involved some kind of thing. I think it was like a magician or something and stealing money, a three card Monty or whatever the hell it was. And it was hilariously funny. And Jason sent me the uh, raw footage of the of the episode which involved uh, Ashton Kutcher doing this really amazing piece on a very famous routine that Dane had done when you want to tell somebody to fuck off, but you just can't tell them enough. You don't just give them the finger, you give them the super finger, which is two fingers, which ended up becoming Dane's logo and meaning more than, than fuck you. It meant more. It was a symbol for his whole tour, his fans, whatever. It was a great segment. It was funny. Ashton was hilarious in the open. Jason had directed a great episode. And, uh, but Dane was just, you know, he was just unsure. He wasn't sure what, it, what he wanted to do, and he wouldn't give an answer right away. And Jason kept calling me and calling me, and the persistence that he had, which was amazing, it just never stopped. He was like that kind. I think to myself, there's, you know, if you're a guy out there um, in business, and you're persistent. It reminds me of the guy like in a dance club who goes up to a girl and has no attachment to whether she says no to him or she says yes to him. He just keeps coming back and wearing her down until she finally says, oh, fuck it, I'll give you my number. And she'll give the right number for some reason. And that's the way he was. He was just so persistent. I was so impressed because that's the thing. That's the key to successful business. If you if you keep going at something, you're going to go. But if you can't make it happen, you go through every objection. Like if you're a salesperson in a, let's say, a health club, your bosses will tell you that they walked in there because they want to work out and get in shape. They didn't walk in there because they don't want something. So when you give them the hard sell and they say, oh, I left my wall in the car, oh, that's okay, don't worry about it, just leave, just leave this or whatever. They tell you in any job like that, high-powered sales, five objections, and on the sixth objection, if they give it to you, just like, all right, go fuck yourself, get out the door, or whatever. But Jason wasn't a six-objection guy. He was a guy who just kept coming, coming, coming. And I would engage Dane every time that he told me, listen, can we get an answer, we get an answer, get an answer? I'd engage Dane, and again, Dane would push me off and say, I, I don't know, I'm not sure. He never would say no, he never would say yes. But as time goes in production, you got to get things going. And finally, I had to go over to Dane's place or something, and I said, look, I need an answer, yes or no. He said, look, I, I you know, I just... I just am not sure. I just don't know. 
And Jason, I called Jason up. And I told him this, and this is what was amazing about Jason. He said, you know what, Barry? Um, I know he hasn't given me an answer yet, but I'm moving on. Fuck it. I'm not doing. You want to know something? I've been doing this show for God knows how many years, how many episodes, and I've never had anybody in my entire life, and I've done the biggest stars in the world, take this much time or whatever, and you know what? I'm cutting the cord. Tell them thank you. I'm moving on. I got my episode set. I'm doing it. Cut to, I get a call from Jason years later for a show that he's doing called, at the time, The Last Laugh, which is a uh, a show that ended up on TBS this past year, which involved basically uh, celebrities. The concept was celebrities directing uh, a team of unknown people to create uh, um, practical jokes on unsuspecting uh, regular citizens and then coming for the reveal after with a celebrity. And so Jason said, you got any funny people that can come down and, and, and be part of this cast? And I recommended somebody to him who was a little bit older than normal, probably in their 40s. Um, and I recommended a lot of people. And Jason called me back and said, I'd like to see this person, this person, this person, this person, this person, this person. And this person who I'm talking about... Um, was not on the list of people he wanted to see back. And I, I took a page from Jason's uh, punk days and his persistence, and I said, you know, you really should see this guy. He's great. He'll, you'll like him. And he said, okay, I'll think about it. You know, Jason's like, he just keeps going. He's like a shark in the ocean. He just keeps going and going and going. And I didn't get him to commit then. And then he looked at a bunch of people, and he says, I'm still looking for this guy who could be a cop, who could be anything. I said, really should see this guy. He said, yeah, I know, but he's like, you know, the network is crazy, and this is a young, you know, I wanted to get a younger show because the celebrities will be a little bit older. And and so I, I don't, you know. But finally, after a little bit of persistence, he said okay to five minutes. He said, "Can you give, I said, just give him five minutes. Now, for those of you who don't know how Jason does an audition for people coming in for a practical joke show or something, what you'd call it a hidden camera show, um, you're talking about these people who, uh, and you got a guy who, this is a guy who, who broke people like Dak Shepard, Whitney Cummings, B.J. Novak, uh, Andrew Santino, uh, Bill Hader was on the show, I believe, uh, Steve Renazzisi. So this guy is like the Lorne Michaels of the hidden camera world where he breaks stars. And there's, in my mind, there's three places that break stars in an untraditional way. Saturday Night Live, Comedy Central Roast, and Punked. And so I was really, I knew the power that this guy could bring to something in the, in the thing. That he, so finally he agreed to have this guy go down. Guy goes down, and this is how Jason auditions people. He has them sit down. He sits across from them in this intimidating office where behind him is this video screen of images that keep going through. 
every sixth picture there's a nude woman behind you so you're in the middle of a talking room and you just lose your thought you don't even know where you are i think it's on purpose so this guy comes in he sits down jason comes in a little late sits down in front of him and he says how you doing man listen uh tell me a story and this guy looked at jason and said you tell me a fucking story And Jason looked at him, paused, stood up, reached out his hand, shook his hand and said, congratulations, you're hired. (laughs) And that guy now has his own show where he's shot 140 episodes, uh, a show called The Test, produced by Dr. Phil. And that man is Kirk Fox. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Here we go. You fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard. Uh, my guest today, I'm very honored to have him here. This guy is a, a force of nature. You you sit across from this guy, and it's literally like he looks like he's killed people in his lifetime. It's I don't know what it is. Uh-huh. And, you know, he's a guy that just like, uh, you know, uh, whether he wants to admit it or not, uh, he just, women go crazy over this guy. Maybe it's because of his dark imposing he has that thing where he puts his head down but his eyes go forward it's like this this crazy thing anyway this guy is best known as the co-creator uh of punked and the co-founder of catalyst uh with ashton kutcher he's a guy who's directed or produced over 25 different television shows including some that you may know of like uh like who's got the last laugh on tbs um you got uh beauty and the geek which was a fun show. Um, 
He's done a number of movies as well, including uh, The Butterfly Effect and Guess Who with Bernie Mac. And um, he now is uh, currently the founder of The Social Programming Network, which is a company that provides uh, the production, distribution, and marketing technology infrastructure for a number of different uh, game-changing organizations around the world. Um, an amazing man. Uh, I welcome you all to Jason Goldberg. You're very kind, Barry. All right. Good to see you, man. Good to see you. We're going to have fun today. All right, let's do it. As I like to do, I like to start way, 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 way back. Okay. So take me back to the first moment that any idea or thing inspired you or happened to say, I want to be in this business. Where were you? How old were you? Where was it? What town? What place? So it was, I grew up in this town. So I grew up and I actually went to school um, across the way from where we are right now. So I, 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 I actually went to Beverly Hills High School, then went to USC and then graduated Tulane in the South. And then um, I think the first inclination I had of wanting to do it and getting getting involved was I I left school I was a I was a baseball player so I'd gotten drafted to play professional baseball and what I, team drafted you I got drafted twice actually I got drafted by the Rangers and then the Pirates and I I went in the draft with the Pirates after I had graduated and something wasn't connecting I was I was out there I was uh, I was playing AAA baseball and it just wasn't doing it for me for whatever reason I wasn't sure why. I always you were in triple A. I was, I was right. So out of tell college. me some of the players who you were playing with that made the pros. A lot of them. Um, so there, there were there were many. I mean, my my tryout was I had to pitch to Jose Canseco <laughs> and Mark McGuire. Jeez. And uh, and it was I, I remember this. I remember uh, Canseco was up at bat and. Um, I was in a full stretch. I had him 0 and 2. <laughs> I threw a high fastball, thinking I'd get it right by him and throw it out of the strike zone. He he swung that bat, <laughs> hit that ball so high in the air. I I still don't remember it ever coming down. I never. And this was a wooden bat, and we were coming off of aluminum bat, so I had never seen something hit that hard in my life and <laughs> it literally was higher than the empire state building and that's before steroids that was before yeah and and it was just and he had you know he had that great haircut with the long hair going down to the shoulders the mullet. he really yeah it was a mullet he, he was just i was in awe of how hard he could hit it never did have much respect for him until that day now it wasn't out it went to a center fielder but it, i just never saw a ball hit that hard but anyway I came back and went to work for my father, who's a numismatist. And for those of you that are not smart, a numismatist is someone that deals in coins and currencies and platinum, gold, silver, and trading. And I was, it was dreadfully boring. Um, I hated it. Well, why did you leave the AAA and... It, it, I, I left because um, I we were moving around from uh, motel to motel. I was sharing motel with two other guys. It was it was tricky, um, and I was I just I didn't realize that what a gift um, it would be and a blessing and a privilege to play the game. And it's unfortunate that I didn't really realize it. It came it came easy. This is surprises me about you because it's like the all I think about you is a guy who just 
literally paneling on either side of your face and you're just going for it. So in other words, you were just a natural and you didn't have to work hard at it. You just, it just happened naturally. You weren't technically a hard worker in like a Dustin Petroya type. You were a guy more like a, a Daryl Strawberry type. Fair. Fair. Without except drugs. clean. Yeah, exactly. I, 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 the part that I wasn't into, and I knew this was why, uh, I loved facing the batter and I loved playing on the inside. It was the Don Drysdale move, and I did watch that and studied him. And so the idea of throwing a ball inside and throwing it too tight or potentially hitting someone if they were going to crowd the plate, I loved that idea. So I, I always had that intimidation factor, and I liked playing on the edge. I never wanted to be a guy that was in the middle no matter what I did. I always wanted to be left of center, but enough that I could hit the masses and have some edge with me. So that's always been a part of my character. I think the part, though, was the idea of holding batters on base and the idea of the pitch count. There were so many things going on within the game that I was really only interested in on the one-on-one. I was interested in me versus you, and there were so many other things going on, and for whatever reason, I, ha- I have to think that it was also where I came from. I was more intrigued, actually, with getting a business degree, figuring out economics, rather than playing a sport. I don't know why, but it just happened that way. Well, the fact that you're... Uh almost made it as a Jewish baseball player is, is even more amazing. The Red Sox about uh, eight years ago had three Jewish players out of uh, out of Fit 25 on. I'm a big Red Sox fan. As you can see, I have the on-deck circle of the World Series behind us here. But uh, when, you, when I think of pitching, it has a lot of metaphors uh, to do with uh, our business and, and how it is because what happens is is that there's a lot of failures as a pitcher. There's a lot of failures as a hitter. I mean, the, the the best players in the Hall of Fame fail seven out of ten times at bat. The best pitchers in the Hall of Fame, I mean, if you look at their records, even if they won 300 wins, they've lost 150, 175. So it's the kind of game, it's one of the few games where there's real, real, true failure, and it's a very hard game to do. I mean, you look at the Red Sox this past year, and since you're a baseball fan and you know about it, you look at the pitchers on the team. They weren't the best pitchers in the league. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, when the money was on the line, it, it came together. And that's what I always think about you in business. But but keep going. So, you, so you're working for your dad in the coins. and I was. And I, I always, um, I was a kid in school that was, you know, I was always causing trouble and enjoyed it thoroughly. 45 unexcused absences as a junior <laughs> in high school. It, it, was, it was a thing, but I loved making people laugh. And that's when I, for me, it was how do I get into comedy? Uh, how do I surround myself with great talents like a Kirk Fox who, you know, thank God you made him come in uh, to see me because he's an absolute genius. He's a comic genius, and there's so many of them. So for me, it was always... Uh, I had so much respect, admiration for uh, for comedic talent and anyone that could improvise on top of that. Just, you know, in my book, genius, and anyone that can do it that way. Um, and there's so many great ones out there. That became a passion for me. And my oh. passion was is celebrating them and figuring out a way to get close and work with them. But you're working in the, your dad's, with your dad and the coins, and you, you, you've made people laugh on the baseball team. I, I hate that I, I, I have to tell this quick story because I, I think it relates to you so much and you probably don't even know it. Um, the late Danny Gans was a huge baseball prospect also in AAA, like you, and sort of 
thinking that baseball was going to be his thing. He was a natural. He was a great hitter. And, of course, you know, we know he was one of the greatest entertainers ever in Vegas. And he, there was a play at first base. Some guy was running, stepped on his Achilles heel, tore his Achilles heel, and his career was over. And he spent, like, you know, he tried to figure out what he was doing. And like you, with the coins and everything and the currency, he was really depressed. He couldn't figure out where his direction was, whatever, and he was so down. And his dad said, listen, here's uh, a ticket uh, to Las Vegas. You're coming with me. I'm taking you to Las Vegas. Like, Dad, I'm, I want to go to Las Vegas. I'm taking you to Las Vegas. There's something I want you to see. He takes him to see Sammy Davis Jr. perform. And they finish the show. They get out. He loved it. He said, Dad, why did you take me to see Sammy Davis Jr.? He said, because on the baseball team, you always were funny. You're always making jokes. You always loved comedy. I think you can do this. I want you to see this. Just try. And then he went out and he started doing these corporate shows for these companies. He never did a comedy club. Never did a theater, never worked the traditional way. And one day the Nederlanders saw him at a corporate show, offered him four Broadway shows in New York, just on an off time. He sold out all four of them. They offered him a huge deal, but he decided to go to Vegas and do his thing. But again, out of something that didn't work in baseball. So you're only the second story I've ever heard in, in this business about it. So so you're, so you're what happened there that in, invited you to go into comedy and want to go into comedy? It just was, um, I really, um, a great admiration for what I was seeing out of uh, what Lauren was doing. Um, and, you know, he's just, you know, what he was putting on the air every week seemed astonishing to me and also that idea of live there was something about you know the live thing where anything could go wrong but watching these great comedic geniuses come out of there and what they were doing I just there was a lot of you know I had a lot of respect something was relating to it I wasn't sure what it was and I think that we all have uh you know delusional thoughts that maybe we could be one of those guys and um, you know, a cast member of Saturday. Yeah, I think a lot of people have to go through what they think um, could be, you know, uh, possibly a trajectory to take you there, a roadmap to get you there. So I wasn't sure if that's what it was, certainly for me, but I knew I wanted to be around it. Um, from there, it was I had connected with a friend and really just started getting involved in making movies made a bunch of uh, independent movies and what um, was your first independent movie you made and what was the what was the what, what was the group of people you were around at the time and so we, and what was your role on the movie i immediately uh, realized that you know you had to figure out a way to get money in this business unless you were going to go through the system and that would be the studio system or the agency system i wasn't a guy that went through fraternity um, so that seemed not the right way for me to get into it. Um, I always viewed myself as an entrepreneur, had a business degree and felt, hmm, I've got to find a way here. So I had a good uh, understanding of how banking worked. And so what happened was um, I went into independent movies with a friend um, and started to raise money. We raised some capital. Um, I really wasn't, to be frank, I wasn't really even interested in the creative at first. It was just the deal making that really was interesting to me. So I made an arrangement with a couple banks. Uh, I think at the time it was Union Bank and Bank Paribas, and they were doing 
gap financing loans of at that time about 25%. And this is the time when Harvey Weinstein started making his move and really making, uh, you know, I'd say a business out of independent movies at Merrimax with his brother. And so he opened up really, you know, such a big business for so many people. Um, and um, we saw it as an opportunity. And the idea was, uh, you know, I would hold the I would handle the economics of it. Um, and someone else was running the creative of it. And we were doing a lot of deals. We had made, you know, movies like Homage and Cafe Society with pretty cool directors and, you know, great talents like, you know, Frank Whaley and Blythe Danner and, you know, um, there was there was John the late John Spencer, such a great actor from West Wing. Most people know him from. But you know, we had done we'd done uh, made about eight nine movies, and we did great from them. And then what happened from there was and, the, and then the budget of each movie, the average budget of each one of these movies was what one to three, got it, somewhere in that zone, about one million to three million dollars. And we were, you know, the the game plan was let's go ahead out of foreign and let's uh, let's sell the foreign markets. We'll sell the foreign territories and let's try it at minimum to sell uh, 90% of the cost of the movie. In most cases, my policy was uh, leave domestic. You know, there was gravy if you hold, held the domestic. Also at that time, there was Showtime and HBO where you could actually get a pretty penny from them, um, mainly because they weren't doing original programming like they are doing now. And uh, we, we did great. We ran a great business. Now, you, you talked a little bit ago about how you were inspired by Lauren uh-huh. Michaels and what he was doing every week. It was in awe, you were in awe of how he was putting together a ninety-minute show every week, comedy. Yet you're doing ten independent films and not a lot of comedy. Not a lot of comedy. No. So why? Why? Well, the other end of me was analytical mind and understood the business of it. So, um, but couldn't you understand the business of comedy? It was, films? it was harder to get into it. I didn't, it felt it was, I wasn't sure how to get into it. And also, as I was saying, you know, the way into it would have been probably through an agency or a studio and working inside there, but to become an entrepreneur and figure out to get into the television business, not easy to do. And easier to get into the film business actually in the independent film game and so if i could make something happen there that ultimately maybe i could find a connection that would bring me back to tv so ironically i always wanted to get to television so i use film to get there and um and i also had a great deal of respect so my roots were film uh and then knowing that it always intriguing to get into the world of comedy and television so how did that happen the way it happened was um the independent market dried out. Um, I was going to go inside um, and had an interesting. I then uh, got to meet some of the, uh, the the great agents out there. Right when that happened, uh, I met Ashton Kutcher, um, and Ashton had known. Uh, I guess the mutual friend there was Danny Masterson, who he was on the '70s show with, um, and. Uh, Ashton really had a bug to get into the business, and I think he had just started, and he, he had done Dude, Where's My Car and 70 Show. And we met, um, and uh, it was around this time that I got to meet those guys. And uh, But Ashton really had a bug to start a business, is what it was, and I had to make a decision. Am I going to go inside of the studio system right now, find my way in there, um, or is there something interesting here with this guy, this, you know, Ashton? 
what a lot of people didn't know uh, about Ashton was, you know, it's interesting. This business is perception is a reality. So the characters you play, in essence, you you somewhat become them in the mind's eye of from a branding perspective of the world. And, uh, you know, the power of branding is incredible. Here he's come out with, you know, playing very specific characters. Um, so when you meet him, you're really taken back that here's a guy who's super thoughtful, real smart, uh, understood and craved uh, understanding, uh, you know, and having a lot of respect for comedy. And again, shared something very similar, which was this idea of, you know, Lauren and what was happening at SNL, which is, I'm sure, the uh, you know, a bond that so many people share. Um, at the time when you met him, had he hosted the show yet or no? He had not hosted the show yet. Got it. Okay. Um, I think uh, when I first went to his house, though, he had a collection of every single episode ever made. And that's when there was there was a bond there. But a guy that was smart, really understood what was happening, but you never would have known it. Um, now, now, this is an interesting thing. So, And I know he's a smart guy, and I've had the opportunity to meet him a few times on the set of a couple of movies. And uh, uh, similar to you has a vibe of that he's a leader of men and women. You know, he has that kind of look in his eye, that kind of thing that I'm going to get shit done. And um, the thing that's odd is that he's smart, brilliant guy, wants to be in the business, has uh, some money to hire somebody. Why is he going to hire a guy for his comedy brand who has never shot a frame of comedy in his life. This is what's odd, and I want your perspective of what he was thinking and your perspective of what you were thinking because if you're a smart guy in the business, on paper dictates you're going to come up with a list of people who you believe are right for this job. All of them, one guy did three years at Comedy Central. One guy did three years at Lionsgate doing comedy film. One guy did this. One guy produced five films. Where do you belong in that list at that time? Because you don't have any comedy experience. You're like, you're like an embryo. Why would he hire you? He wasn't looking to hire anyone. He was looking for a partner. And, and that's even that's even, I'm not saying this in a bad way, that's even worse not only you know do you take a little, you take a risk by hiring a development person he's hiring you as a founder and a partner somebody who's never he's done 200 episodes of television comedy walking on a stage sound stage and he's bringing in a partner who has zero at that point it was probably 44 episodes he had done and a 44. movie however here was here was the uh here was the connection that was made um i think he had a lot of respect for what had been done outside of the industry outside of support independently um and that the same thing that you uh so graciously credited me for in your opening here was i think he saw that nothing was going to get him in my way whether i was with him or not um to get to where i needed to get to well that's what makes him that's what makes him so smart and that's what makes you such a great salesperson because you had to meet with him and i'm not saying that you went into the meeting saying i'm going to sell him on this and i'm going to prove to him this but you just have this natural thing sort of like your baseball skills where you go in you sit across from somebody and technically on paper 
just like the Boston Red Sox on paper were not the best team in baseball, but they won the championship. You were a guy who on paper wasn't even close to the best person for that position, but Ashton, after sitting down with you and what you showed him, and his his mind said, I know this guy is the right choice, and he's going to take me to the promised land. And just to, just to give you a little bit bigger head, which I'm, I hope I don't do here because uh, that would be dangerous. For those of you who don't know in our audience, um, there's a plethora of television actors who have been given development deals by television studios and networks. Hundreds of actors who became stars on sitcoms, whatever, and to keep them happy... They gave them a little bit of money. They gave them an office in, you know, uh, Mickey Mouse building D13 and gave them an assistant and some a refrigerator with some refreshments and all the supplies they needed and some rented furniture. And here you go. Start your production company. Go ahead. Uh, and uh, David Hyde Pierce or whoever it might be. And they hire somebody all of them hire somebody with that salary they give them now normally the salary that they give them in those intro deals believe it or not can be as little as thirty thousand dollars to as much as maybe depending how big the star is maybe as much as a hundred or 150 if they're a huge huge star but it's not a lot of money but instead of hiring an assistant, a lot of times they take that money and they hire that person and have interns or whatever they want to do so the point I'm trying to make here is that out of all these deals in my entire lifetime of being in this business, you can count on half a hand a guy who went into business with a guy who was given one of these deals or who wanted to get into the business who actually did something with it and made something happen. I'd say 99.5% close up shop without getting anything on the air and anything done and you are one of the few people who ever got shit done and not only did you just get one thing done you've gotten tons of things done you created a brand a company and so it turned out that meeting what looked like a decision he made that didn't look like a good decision on paper turned out to be probably one of the best decisions of his life in that side of the business Maybe. I mean, here's the other thing. We actually, when we decided to form, we were offered one of those deals. And we decided not to take that deal. So we were offered a deal from Merrimax. Merrimax uh, Dimension at the time. And uh, the thought process was, um, it was almost too easy. And again, I didn't come from the system. So I came almost from a blue collar, get into this game a different way background. So you have to figure out, you had, there, was, there was no industry support, if you will. And I do credit him a lot for that. You know, um, the instinct is exactly that you get these offers when you hit a certain pinnacle and then everyone takes that offer. They yeah, just do. And, and the problem is for, for the audience listening is that you should know this and it's a horrible part of the business. That's a, it's a paradox. Whenever you're offered money for anything, you're giving up control and you're losing control and you're losing power and you're losing the chance to take things to the next level financially and creatively in your life. But it's hard because sometimes you're living in a studio apartment 
or things aren't going well, or people think you're doing well, but you're not. We just interviewed um, uh, Patty Jenkins, who, um, which will be on an episode later, who uh, was the director and writer of the movie Monster. Yep. Now, perception for her is, oh, she she wrote this movie? She directed this movie? Uh, Charlize Theron won an Academy Award? This woman must be like, she must do a cut of how much money she made from this movie. $65,000. That's all she's made on that movie, $65,000. But the perception in the world is that she's really, really successful. And the perception in the world with Ashton, he's on a sitcom, he's done 44 episodes, he probably was making about twenty dollars to $40,000 an episode in the first two seasons. You know, they think, oh, well, he's made a million dollars or millions of dollars, but after taxes, commissions, everything... You don't have as much money as people think you have. And certainly you didn't have the money, but you turned it down, sort of like the main character in The Fountainhead who, uh, who was given the opportunity to do something great but said, no, I want to do it my way. So that's exciting. So He wanted, he wanted also, he didn't want to take the money in, uh, um, because of all the things you said. Um, he believed that we could figure something out, own something, and you know this is a business also the magic of the business is sometimes it does take one you get one and then it can pave a way so uh and the other thing was beyond that is he liked the idea of all right i have a partner here he was smart i'm we're not going to bring in any money how's he going to eat we're going to have to hustle here we're going to have to get things across and he he uh, there was a great deal of tenacity and will and hunger in him at that point in time of his life where he wanted to go ahead and make his mark on this business. For uh, for me, personally, with other options on the table, I just thought there was a lot that we could do, and I actually appreciated the smarts behind it. But more than anything, um, I believed that he, um, you know, he really wanted it. And I think the perception also was when you're dealing with someone that's in front of a camera, there's a lot of inconsistencies with who that person is on any day, given day of the week. And uh, would he grow tired of the chase in this business? Because there's a lot of, there are a lot of downs in this business. There's certainly some ups. Now, some people would say there's some ups and downs. I start with there are a lot of downs in this business and a few ups. So, therefore, you've got to be able to brush it off. It's, it's no different than a quarterback that's just thrown a pick. They've got to get it out of their head, and they have to keep coming back, and they got to figure out how to improve and how to get the ball in the end zone. Um, so I look at it the same way, and I, you know, the odds are is you know every pilot season or every you know um, when when uh, shows are put on the air, I don't know what the percentage is, but I have to imagine that over eighty percent of them are not working. Three percent, three percent of all the pilots that are made um, get on the air, and probably another. Probably another three to five percent of those make it to syndication. So it's a very, very low percentage. And you roll out, and you create uh, an idea with uh, Ashton. Tell me how that idea comes live. Is that and and what's the first show you roll out with? Is that it? We it was the very first thing <laughs> we did. Uh, so that was so coming true to form with you in baseball. You're a natural in baseball. You're a natural in meeting with somebody and getting a gig. And now you're you come up with an idea with him. How does it come about? We, we here's how it came about. The minute I walked in there, we realized very quickly 
um, he was getting buddy comedy after buddy comedy after buddy comedy. And what, what a lot of people didn't know about Ashton was is here's a guy that wanted to he wanted to do different things, even comedically. Um, he wanted to do, play different characters, but the same character kept coming in over and over. And we, we talked about it. What what are you seeing? And it was a consistent pattern of what was happening. And I think what Ashton, you know, Ashton almost runs that as a business where he's the CEO of him as an actor. And he looked at it and said, I want to make these changes. How do we change this? How do we change the perception? And, um, uh, you know, how do we how, how do I get different offers? How do I get different roles? And um, and I talked to him about, well, would you be open to doing TV. Now, at that point in time, we're talking about uh, early 2000s. There's a trend of use TV to get you into film. He had done both. The first film he did was really successful. Um, and you know, it was on a very successful uh, sitcom as well with that 70s show. So I think the last idea, probably the worst idea you could come up with was this conversation that we had, which was the idea of, would you also do TV again, though, right now, and do something in alternative TV? Going back to, again, something we shared in common, which was uh, the love of SNL. And he, we just started to talk about it. What is, what is not on television? What's not on television? What are we watching right now? And at that point in time, we really grew up in the MTV culture. I think that was, you know, um, what was happening there with uh, Van Toffler and Judy McGrath. And, um, you know, at that point in time, it was Brian Graydon who was in there. Van Toffler and Judy were running the network. Van started actually as a business affairs guy doing deals, contracts, and then he moved up. Um, So we watched them and we watched what was happening. We were watching a lot of that. And, you know, we were watching network also, network television. But, you know, it seemed like there was an avant-garde thing happening over there. There was more risk that could be taken. And it had a real cool factor to it with a great association with it. And it was, you know, how do we do something with you in front of the camera that shows your personality for who you really are? Because what, again, no one realized was the characters he was just playing. That's not who he is. It wasn't close to what he was. And so we started talking about candid camera. I mean, that's really what it was. It was, you know. Which a lot of people don't understand this, but candid camera doesn't get the credit it deserves, but it's probably Alan Funt, even though he was kind of like a blue collar kind of feeling guy, he was a genius in the sense that he created a format that has stood the test of time and to this day offshoots of that formula keep working over and over and over again and you can't say that about many formats no i think that's that was the key i wasn't a you know i wasn't watching it uh, a ton i wasn't as addicted as i was to as we were to snl but what we looked at was take that format the magic of what was coming out of snl and it was we saw an amazing amount of great performers and improvers and stand-ups that were not on television. That was that was what we had noticed. Like, wh- how do we get these guys an opportunity? What do they need? How do we fix their problem? So, all these great talents right now. We don't have Broadway out here. So, how are we going to help these guys become famous? That was really what it was. How do we let the world know how damn good these guys are? 
Um, so from Second City. Uh, but to- you know the interesting thing about uh, punk and the show is, uh, if you'll oblige me, this is the difference in that um, I'll relate it to somebody. Every most almost every cast member of a punk episode plays the role that Ice Cube plays in his movies. They play, for the most part, the straight man to the craziness of what ensues in the situation, which is fascinating to me, which people don't realize. You think that you have a cast member on something, and they're going to be hilarious. Yes, there's the occasional person who you have come in who goes crazy and does something nuts and is funny. But the comedy in punk does not come from the cast members. The comedy comes from the reaction of the celebrity to the event, the reactive comedy, which a lot of people don't get. And so here you are hiring these people and breaking stars who are straight men to the comedy of the celebrities. Mm. Did you understand that when you were getting into it? We did, actually, uh, mainly because we had studied it. And um, again, I certainly wasn't famous for it, but I guess what... uh, just watching what was happening and also did it doing understanding uh the comedy of what you know even when i look at what jason bateman's doing right now and just his style of comedy and what he's doing and how smart and quick he is he's very quick-witted but you know you watch him play a straight guy he plays it so well and it's it's you know it, it works in tandem you know that better than anyone but for us, it, to go back to this all, it was how do we connect these two formats? And then it was, wouldn't this be great if we uh, could take big celebrities and actually make them the marks? Uh, the story goes that we called the agency, pitched this to them, and um, and they set us up all over town. We, we pitched NBC, CBS, Fox, uh, WB at the time. And the report back came this way. These guys are really sweet. Really naive, really sweet. I don't know how the hell they think they're going to do something like this. That is, how are they going to get away with doing that? And it was, but we really appreciate their excitement. (laughs) Very sweet guys. And so we went through the whole cycle of pitching the mainstream networks, and we came up with zilch. It was a pass across the board. Pass, 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 pass. So we sat down and uh, and you would think, okay, scratch, let's go to the next one. Not with Jason Goldberg. We're not going to do that. <laughs> and I think that was something that, that both myself and Ashton shared. Uh, and I, I have to give him as much credit as, you know, we had this will for, it's not about where it goes. It's about what you're going to make and how do you make that the best it can be and how do you make sure you get it done. And we had no doubt in our mind we could figure this out. So that when we got the report, it wasn't that discouraging because we knew we could get it done. We meet with, um, with MTV um, and we sat down and they talked about, really, what do you guys want to do? And we, we, we spoke about it at the table. We what went, executives there were in the room? Do you remember? We didn't go to a room. We didn't want to go into the building. We wanted to go. We felt that that was the other issue. Is it got it? When you go into these rooms, it was a bit sterile, and you're in their time, and we had to loosen them up. I mean, that was also part of it because you know, they're, they're, in, their, they're in these rooms, and they're hearing 50 of these pitches a day. And I always go to the time when I interviewed. Uh, we did a, uh, you know, we did an audition with Jeremy Piven and a bunch of other people for 
a movie I did called Friends of Friends, and we saw 60 people for the same role, and uh, everyone had their sides, and they all said the same thing. And then Piven comes in, takes those sides, rips them up, and goes completely off the page. Plays the character to a T, but puts it in his own language. At the end of the day, who are we talking about? We're talking about Piven. At the end of the day, he was the guy because he did it differently. And we really strove for doing things. Let's do this differently. Let's go left of center. So we thought, all right, we got to change this. We got to give ourselves a better shot. We need to re- we need we can't be we can't be there and we've got to make sure that their meeting isn't in the next 20 minutes and they're thinking about something else. So we met we met really for food and drink. And um, and we got into it. And did at that a, time, did you have a sizzle reel or you just a pitch? No, there's at that time there was no sizzle reel. It was okay. ultimately passion. And could you articulate what the format would be? And it, it, we were sitting with Rod Asa, who later in his career actually hired him to work for the company. So it's funny how things move full circle. But relationships always uh, it's it's really important. You always have to remember. But I. Uh, we sat with him. He brought us in. We met Lois Curran at the time, who was a great executive, real, real student of TV. And then it was Brian Graydon's house, I mean, on the West Coast. And uh, and it was really, it was those three people that gave us the shot. And of course, Van and Judy on top of it. We go out to Las Vegas. Okay, so now they give you money for a pilot. They do. And so do you remember how much money they gave you for the pilot? Because normally at MTV, what happens is... When they have you do a pilot, they sort of, it, it's this exciting thing, it, another paradox. They say, hey, we're giving you a pilot. And you're like, oh, this is great. But normally in network television, you get a pilot. Like if you get a show like, let's say, a, a Whitney show or whatever, it could be a minimum of $1.7 million for the pilot. It could be as much as $3 million. You just, you know, sometimes, and but you go on a cable network, basic cable, and you're lucky if you're getting they're giving you seventy five thousand dollars or a hundred and something thousand dollars, and you got to make it all work and make it look like it's millions of dollars. Do you remember what they gave you? It's a funny question because at that time we had not done any television, so when we went to talk about it, it was don't worry about what the pilot is. In essence, you guys are going to be kids. Okay, we're going to put some people around you. And then you guys are gonna just just do your thing, or pretend to do your so thing. So they, so in other words, they they didn't give you a amount of money. They said we're doing it through our production That's right. company. You guys come in; they'll do everything you say, and uh, but you're gonna utilize these people who are doing it. Got it. I think it's that, and also there was they pro- they had one person in there that made sure that they had they had uh, what I like to call um, a spy. So they had their spy, uh, and this is the truth. And no one will talk about these things, but this is really the truth. That's so there was why a we're spy in there. Standard to talk about these things. There was a spy, and so that spy <laughs> had to basically smile with us and then report back what was happening. Okay, and so and 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 that and then ideally they have a gatekeeper that's running the money, which they call a line producer. And then uh, the spy, and then you know, and then around them, every, all the notes they need to get done are happening that way. Where, so so the the thing that was uh, okay about it was this: there was no show like this that you could imitate. There was no model for what we created. There was no we're going to go get this guy because he's done this, and it's just a tad bit different. It, it's exactly why in our career, in my career in particular, the worst word ever used is derivative so there was nothing derivative about this we basically looked at two 
great formats and figured out a way to bleed them, and no one was doing that. So it was, they really are, we're going to have to trust, because in mine and Ashton's mind, we knew, we really knew how we wanted to go do it. We knew, and this was the biggest break in this entire show. When we went to go shoot it, the most important thing that we wanted, and I'll tell you, this is really where we lucked out, was <laughs> I, we put cameras in the control room. There was no control rooms at this time. There was never in television. It wasn't show the crew what they're show the crew what they're doing. Don't sh- I mean show the show the world what the crew is doing. There was that was didn't exist. Why we wanted it was because I knew that we needed a cut point. So I knew that at that point in time when we're on we were three cameras on a scene and you're watching a skit happen. Um, we knew that we needed something to cut back to. So we thought, oh, that would be cool. Just cool. So I put a reverse camera behind us where you could see the monitors that we were seeing. And then one back on us where we totally lucked out was, yes, it became a, a cut point. But where it, what we didn't realize was it was so much fun to make this show. So much fun that now I'm here 12 years later still making these shows because I am absolutely addicted and love it. There's no form of comedy that I've had more fun with than doing it because of the authenticity of that comedy. There's, it's, it's unbelievable. And so what happened was we got back to the edit bay and we're looking at that camera and we are laughing our ass off. And it's so real and contagious that we realized, oh my God, once you show that to an audience... They can't help to laugh, and there became your laugh track and your punch. And so in old sitcom, it was the laugh track, and they would hit the button, and that would be it. This was our version of how to do it in a cool way, and we did luck out on it. We knew we needed a cut point. We did not realize it was going to be that. That was a big deal, and no one knows that about this show, and that's what's different about this show. And so it was you know, my big learning lesson in going through this now and my philosophy in any type of storytelling, whether it's digital, television, film, it's the specificity of every detail because you're always telling a story. And if you've ever had the, you know, the pleasure of sitting down with a guy like Bill Clinton at the table, he can tell you a story for two hours and you're on that story because he's so specific in his storytelling and the best filmmakers and people that are making television are the best storytellers. And so the reason why they're great at that is because they're very specific in the detail. Every little nuance is important and it keeps you connected. And that's really what happened here. And that was the magic really of the show. And so you're, you're directing, uh, on, and and so your first cast behind the scenes, I believe Dak Shepard was one of them. It was Dak Shepard. Who else was in that first? We uh, actually had Al Shear who was, Al was, had done something on BET called Hits on the Street. Mm-hmm. So it would be the, uh, I would have said, the low-budget version of what we were doing, but a one-man machine who had more balls than anyone that we could ever see. Um, and he was doing it really um, in, you know, in urban cities. He was, he was attacking the streets of Atlanta. Very funny guy. I mean, really, really funny guy. And it was really the two of them. Um, and the and thing that was, was interesting was, was okay. I'm sorry. Who was your mark? Who was your mark that first pilot, or mark? So the first mark was we um, 
we had Carmen, uh, Carmen Electra and Dave Navarro, and we basically uh, had to figure out a way to get them to come to Las Vegas without talking to their agent or their manager. Um, so we had to figure out how we were going to put together a plot that was coming from Las Vegas that would give them a free trip to come in, and then we would pick them up at the airport, and then we would give them the ride of their life they would never forget. Um, and that that really was it. And I think the magic of the show was we very rarely did any bookings through managers or publicists. And the main reason why is is or agents. There, you know, there, there's really nothing for them to gain here because, as you tell the story about Dane Cook, the best thing about that was is that Barry did nothing to do with it. He didn't set it up. And we knew that we 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 knew we had to get these things done. And what happened was that show booked on the street. And so what we would do is we'd have people that were booking it on the street. We never, ever spoke to, and it became a customary thing. We never spoke to agents, managers, publicists, anybody. We would get to these people directly. But we also, there was another thing about this show, which was who we went after. Um, we always went after them because we had a great deal of respect for them. So without, I don't, I'm not going to name names on here, but there were a lot of people that were certainly famous at the time and famous for being famous if you know what I mean, famous for doing things in front of a camera and putting them, you know, exploiting their nude bodies, doing dirty things. That was not who we would put on this show. It was about who was the most talented. And I think it started with respect. The other thing is we knew when we went into it, we had a good sense of what would be off limits here. What would we not? What would they not actually appreciate? We didn't. We didn't want to touch those things. So, you know, I, I think that was really important. But at the same time, we want to make sure that we were going to do this to them potentially, most likely, once in their life. And we had one goal: let's make sure that this is going to be something that they remember till the day they die. That was the. That was that was it. And I. And that's what I would preface to the whole crew. So we'd have a crew of about 70 people. And as we were building, we had a star coming in that day. And the most important thing was we're all playing for this one moment. You're building. It's eight, nine hours. You're building a scenario. It's, it's hides. It's build. It's construction guys. We're all moving. The nerves are starting to go. We're watching. The technical aspects are coming together. And then it becomes he's coming. He's minutes away. There is something that's happening, the goosebumps, the butterflies in the stomach, the whole thing. And for the, it's at this moment, for the next 10 to 15 minutes, no matter how it goes, this whole team is bonded. We're all bonded and we're all hoping for the same thing. It's not a job. It had nothing to do with a job. And anyone that worked on that show would know that. It was unlike any show and it is like any other show. There's, these people are not doing it because of the job. We actually are doing it because we're collectively trying to pull off the impossible. And the most important thing is when you see it and you see the reveal and their true shock at what happened, you have art department looking at cast, cast looking at producers. You've got everyone looking around and it's a wink of knowing that they are the best in the business at what they do and we just put together something that was something they'll remember for the rest of their life. So these were the things that we were doing uh, behind the scenes and for us it was not to take from your title but this became our industry and it became something very different and this became the norm for us and that was really what it became. So we would get off and pitch things from the network like we want you to do this person. We had earned a, 
Um, you know, we had earned credibility where we were, if we were uncomfortable with that, or we didn't believe that that person would be, or was at the place where they deserved to be on this show, we wouldn't do it. So it was, it, it's an amazing thing and it still goes on to this day. I mean, we just, we're, we're entering season 10 right now. So it's, it's wild. And so you cut together the pilot and the network, uh, how long is it before the network tells you? We're picking this up. Well, that's um, that's a it didn't go that smoothly. So, without getting too far into detail, when we created the show, it was celebrities one, and then we also were not sure um, with we we were also doing celebrities and real people, meaning non celebrities. Okay, celebrities are real people, but civilians, regular civilians. So on that pilot, we went to a hotel. We put uh, an actor uh, behind the lobby uh, or behind the front desk. A random couple came in. He thought, this would be a good idea. He checks them into our suite. They think they have reservations and for a regular room. It's a guy and a girl. And they go ahead and they check in and we send them up to our suite. And um, in our suite, there is something that's very different. It's not a regular room. It's a suite. There's flowers there, champagne there. Lady walks in with her husband, and she says, my God, honey, this is amazing. You did this for me? He didn't do this for her. And he says, anything for you. They walk in, they sit down, (laughs) and all of a sudden, they open the double doors to the bedroom, and they see something so disturbing (laughs) on the floor with yellow police caution tape and they see a body laying on the floor (laughs) and I can't explain the look on their face but needless to say this became um, a a very serious litigation Uh, it was a big learning lesson for us um and um so no amount of money to them was like hey listen this is just a practical joke they wouldn't take no i think they were beyond uh we learned a lot that day uh the beauty <laughs> the, the thing about that by the way is um the analytical mind of me is this thing is going on and we're 25 seconds in and i'm doing the same thing you're doing of that laughter when you start to see the moves they start making laughter starts going to we need to get in there right now and then you know, my partner, uh, you know, right next to me saying, no, 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 no. Keep going. This is genius. We got to keep going. And so essentially I won out on that one and we, we did what we had to do and, uh, we're not going to name names or anything like that, but it did happen. And, uh, and it was a big learning lesson. Now here's, here's where the big credit comes. Judy McGrath and Van Toffler have a big decision to make. This was no little lawsuit. And Van is a guy who started in that world of lit- of business affairs and legal. Yeah. So they have to make a tough decision, and um, and they they I, I I don't know which way they're going to go. And I will say that the the lawsuit that came in, we were all sued. Uh, you know, it was uh, it was a nine figure lawsuit. Um, it was big time, and they have a decision to make. So, what do you do? You have this pilot. You look at it. They test it. They have to make a decision. So we think for sure we're out. And this is why MTV 
in my view, is so cool. They so understood their audience. But those two executives, on top of Graydon and Lois, yes, they looked at that and said, that's not a good thing, but we learned from it. But they had the insight to know more than anyone that what they just saw was something that was different, that was not being made, that was a cool factor that was also going to work in television. They were sure of it, and they backed it. A lot of other networks, I will tell you right now, would have written that one off. And if that happened today, I don't know who takes that on. I think the minute that goes down, I think they're running for the hills on that one. I think but you're right. I think and there's just, you know, times have changed, but um, there was something magical about it. They picked it up. Uh, they knew. How many episodes in did you and Ashton pop the champagne and say, we have a hit? <sighs> we never, you know, it was funny. After the first season of the show, we started episode one. It was Justin Timberlake. And the marketing campaign was Justin Timberlake walks up his driveway. And there was there was a look on his face where we've taken his entire driveway and stuck it with IRS agents everywhere. And his entire house is boarded up. I have everything. I have his dog. We've owned everything. And the look on his face was the it was a great marketing campaign. But after we aired that episode, the you know, it was something many millions of viewers it was it was it was a big thing. We weren't sure and at the time, I will tell you right now, I didn't even know what ratings were and didn't even know that they I didn't know how they were looked at. I couldn't tell you anything about them. And the and and what happened was is as it went through the first season, um, apparently it just kept going up and up and up and up. And then Ashton was on the cover of Rolling Stone and his, you know, really pedigree as a creator. Um, and I would say, and just, uh, you know, his personality really came out on that show. It was a really good call, uh, for him to do this, but his, his stature, his fame went to a whole nother level. And, um, and then the bad news happened, which was, you know, we decided to do that show for one season. There was no point in that. We didn't want to do the show for multiple seasons. We just wanted to do it as an entryway, as a gateway to get into the TV business. They came back and were ready to go and do a multi-year, a multi-season deal. But you can't do it. You can't, as new creators, you can't do a deal with Van Toffler for one season. I mean, Doug Herzog, he told me, Bill Hillary, when he was at Comedy Central, did a deal with Dave Chappelle for two years for the Chappelle show. And Doug came in as president, and his main responsibility was get him locked up for a multi-year thing. And he said they made the biggest mistake of their lives only doing a two-year deal because once something became successful, no matter how much they backed up the truck with money, he still went to Africa. So why would Van Toffler do a one-year deal for Punk? It doesn't make any sense. It wasn't to me. a one-year deal that they that they had done. We were paid very, very little money. I think we made in that year. We may have made, I don't know, maybe five thousand an episode, maybe eight. I don't know, somewhere in that zone. And that would have been an executive producer fee uh, that they made, and then the budget of the production. A lot of times in the beginning, what happens is a network will take over the production, like they did the pilot. And they'll do it in-house, and they'll keep an eye on, like I said, the line producer will keep an eye on all the figures. And the goal of Ashton and, and Jason eventually was to take the production on themselves, mm -hmm. where they got the full budget. They hired their own editors, their own thing. They were in control, 
And that way, there was extra money. When you do a production company, you're running a business. So the editor is in an editing bay. He gets a salary, but on the line item, it might say 5000 a week for the editing. And that's how production companies make money. And they normally make around, I'll say, an average of about 30 cents on the dollar of a production. And it can be much more. It can be less. And then there's that executive producer fee, which is 10% of whatever the budget is. Fair. And I think what you know what happened was we, we had one out, which was Brian Graydon says to us, took us to dinner congratulations it's a smash hit how are you going to do a second season well how would you i mean it's a hidden camera show right so they know you're out there and we're dealing with the one percent of the world so anytime a celebrity anything's going south weird anything they have to know and that's when all the you know at that point in time, it was 12 eyeballs just looked down the barrel at me. Yeah, but what they didn't realize was is that a lot of people who are in our business are self-absorbed and they don't really think of it in the moment. Well, there, was, there were tricks and trades of how to do it. And I think what happened was at that point in time, after we had said we, we weren't interested in continuing, we had, we, had a, we had learned a valuable lesson. The more we said no... The, the more we actually the ended power, up getting. The power of no. And the power of no was a very interesting thing. And the reason why was we didn't make a lot of money from it, first of all. But secondly, we only did it for one thing. We wanted to make sure that the guy, the five, the five networks that said no to us, that when we went back into the room, that they would never say that with us it's impossible. That was the most important thing to me was because when I looked at you know NBC, ABC at the time, those buyers, Fox, all of them, I wanted to make sure when I went back in it was that is a really out there idea, but we know they can do it. That was, you know, that that was the most important thing to me. I wasn't even thinking about this for a second season, third season, fourth season. And then the problem was is the deal got so um it got it really was done in a way where we couldn't not have done it. And then what happened was we had to figure out, okay, so you got them how to re- you got it. them to renegotiate the deal after one year. Yes. And so here's a question for you. You don't have to mention money. If you and Ashton were making one hundred dollars for the first season, after you renegotiated, how much money were you making for the second season in those terms? If you were made $100 for the first season, what were you making for the second season? A lot. I mean, it just, it, I can't really. I'm not asking you to do dollars. I'm just asking you to say how many times more. Um... <laughs> I want you to know this is the first time he smiled in the whole interview. <laughs> That's funny. I don't know. I actually don't know. It was um, very different. <laughs> <laughs> because the negotiation happened for nine months. We, we stayed off the air. I, and the main reason why is we actually really didn't want to go make it. We didn't. We, we thought, how cool would this be? We're going to do this once. You should see. Say. I understood what Dave Chappelle was going through. I, 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 I can tell you because when he went to Africa, you understood. I it. understood. It. And here's the reason why. I, when, I, when we ended up doing this, I knew my life was over with. To produce that show is a it's a beast. It's a beast, and you are I am part stockbroker, I am part 
uh, you have to be you have to be very creative. You have to be you're working from nine in the morning till two in the morning. Every single there's no Saturdays and Sundays. It's everything to make the schedule and make it work because you have to realize the guest star of the show has no idea they're going to be on a show. I don't have a manager or an agent to call to say, hey, can we count on them being there at seven o'clock? No, because they don't know where they're supposed to be. So to actually build the team and the nucleus to actually get this done was a beast. And it was something that took many years. I mean, there was nothing else I could do except make the show. And then what happened was it was a we did a three season deal. We didn't stop. We never went on hiatus. I mean, they would give me two weeks to go off and then back at it. It was the business of television. And, um, and that this was the show that I really understood. I never understood how my father got gray hairs. I now understood. I, I didn't, I couldn't, I just couldn't fathom it. But I will tell you, with all, of the, uh, all the problem of putting that show together and how challenging it was, it became, you know, I would go to, for example, the Laker game. And, uh, and this was really interesting, not Ashton, but me. And I would see Shaquille O'Neal running up and down the court and he was looking at me and <laughs> taunting me. You can't get me. And I'm like, I'm no one. I'm supposed to be, I want to be the guy behind the scenes. That's it. Like I'm the guy, I'm literally the Jew that's next to Ashton that shouldn't, I'm not talking for a reason. And now I'm being, these people are seeing and they're realizing, and that's when I realized, it was that moment, actually, uh, that I realized, oh, wow, this is really big. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I get it with Ashton, but we used to get, you know, there were, the taunting was unbelievable. And we knew who wanted it. So we knew that when we did Shaquille, we were going to have to really pound him. And it was, a, it was tough for Shaquille when we got him. That was a, he, he was truly shocked, but he earned it. Uh, you know, we used to get it, you know, we, we would get insights from like Kirsten Dunst. She wanted to be on the show. We got it from, um, you know, there was insights from Tom Cruise's camp. Uh, there were, and the one thing I will say, and this is important to know, and this goes back and that we should, we should wrap close to this, but the Dane Cook story, this was the biggest learning lesson. We learned that this was not a show for comedians uh, to be on. This is not a show for comedians to be on. For comedians to be behind the scenes, yes. Not to get punked. No, no. That was really the big learning lesson, and it wasn't Dane, actually. We, it, we had been there before down the road with some other buddies, and, um, and we learned. They just no, they don't want to be the butt of a joke. They don't want someone to go ahead and refer to it on the circuit. Then, and, and that's just the way it is. It's easier to dish it than to get it. And I think, and by the way, we respected it. We didn't keep going after them. So we learned that. And, uh, and, and by the way, you know, we didn't want, we wanted to be accepted in that world. We wanted to be accepted in that community. That was really important to us. So we felt that we got into it um, for those reasons. But they, there's so many things. I can go on with that show for, you know, for hours. But uh, it's still to this day when we get ready to do a setup. It's, it, it's the equivalent of feeling like a rock star. Because you're putting something together that's the impossible. You get to a set. Your team is ready. There's the ultimate respect. They put a microphone in front of you. I'm looking at a quad split of 12 cameras, and I'm calling a live show like a sporting event. It's, it's really unbelievable. And you have to line cut it out there. And you've got to be fast. And you've got to know what, to hap what, what happens when you think 
something's going the wrong way. How do you pull? And how do you make sure you get through it? And how do you make sure that actors are getting a sense of how far they can go? And, um, you know, there's so many things uh, with the facets of that show, and I think I learned a lot from it, but it's been amazing. All right, well, let's ride off. we got a few more things to wrap up, these last few questions that I normally okay. ask that are, are very important to the audience. Uh, but I just want to do something real quick, rapid fire. You don't have to give a long answer. It's just really yep. quick. One situation where your cast let you down and it fucked up the whole thing and the person you're punking it just falls apart and you put so much effort and so much work in and it just goes astray and uh and you can't use it so we're known to and i have always been known to give very different auditions i mean you mentioned the kirk fox thing for me i can i i've been in this long enough to know that i can sit in front of someone and i can tell in less than 10 seconds now but uh, you know, it's a very hard task that we're asking them to do. We're asking them, you know, it's one thing to do something uh, in a room. It's another thing to do it in real life. So now with all our castings, there's many facets of it. It, it. it starts with tell me a story and tell me a funny story. Can you engage an audience? And then two, we actually take them out into the real world and I give them a task. Uh, and I ask them to do something um, in the real world. And, you know, I'd say the biggest disappointment was never one where, um, you know, we've had an actor where, you know, they've, they've made a mistake in the middle of a bit. That's going to happen, and that's actually more on, on me uh, than it is on them because that was a judgment call, and I never want to put someone in that position that shouldn't be in there. Uh, I'd say the biggest mistake, the one where I've gotten really upset um, with, with an actor was before it even got started. Someone... Uh, it's happened twice. Someone gets hired, and I explain to them in great detail that this is punked. This is this is different, and you cannot do. There's there's no announcements. Do not tell anyone you're on this show because what will happen is is this is a game in Hollywood, and the celebrities that know that we're going after them, they will try to figure out who they are so they can get the best of you. They're not giving in. They would love to make us, and it's happened twice where, um, sure enough. Uh, they book the show, and somehow it ends up in the trades that they got the show. And before the, we even pressed go, it's happened. And it's really unfortunate because the uh, the other thing is is the audition process for us is the last season to do, to audition to get our five last year, it took uh, 13 months. It's not wow. an easy process. So we don't ever put anyone out there that we don't think is going to um, you know, going to be the next level, going to be that amazing. It shows you that a person, an actor or an actress can be self-destructive. You know, they get the gig, they do something stupid, they lose the gig. All right, last couple of questions. Your proudest moment in the business. I actually, I, I would say the, the, the proudest was um, something that happened at a dinner table, actually, and I... When you when you're doing these shows, and um, you know I'm a guy that likes the, I like the work, so I'm not a I'm not. There's two types of there's an executive producer and then there's an executive producer showrunner. And when you do a lot of things, executive producers hire showrunners. I'm a showrunner. I like running and actually running a show, the nuts and bolts of it, the whole thing. So sometimes, um, so I like being in the trenches of it, really doing it rather than the check-in and making sure everyone's okay and then showing up to the bay and saying hellos. It's not my thing. 
Uh, it was at a dinner table recently where someone um, was a real fan of what we were doing, and it was about this show again. And I had no idea uh, how much we had actually accomplished. And the main reason why is because I'm going very quickly and very fast and very much like an athlete. With Whether it's a win or a loss, I put it behind me and move on. Uh, so I don't get ahead, um, and I really I focus. But we were going through it. This entire dinner table became about uh, all of the things that we had done um, and in the, in that particular show, the bits, the segments we had done. And he was a real fan. He saw every one of them. We had really done a lot collectively as a team, um, and I just forgot about it. I didn't really realize it. I always kept thinking about, okay, there are eight episode orders. There's 24 to do because there's three per, and that's, that's how I'd attack it. And I have a wall of like, okay, I got 12 left. I got 10 left. And that's how I kept thinking about it. Like, I have to make the schedule. I have to make the schedule, and I have to get the right guys. But when you start doing that over 10 seasons, you start, to, you know, you look and you're, you've done, you know, over 300 segments of this that's to direct all of that was and each one is different it's it's a lot to go through and i walked finally walked away from uh that moment uh and there was no other never i never really felt that way before but it had it was with someone that was a real true fan and that was that moment when i realized wow that guy loved and loves what we do that was awesome to sit with you or sit with anyone that is certainly respectful of it but not an addict of it it's a different thing and there's a mutual respect and that's really nice um but i you know my philosophy with these things is you can always do better and have a little bit of a negative chip on my shoulder which is we have to do better so that that moment that was the moment for me great the late bernie mac one story you can share with us from working with him on the movie Bernie Mac was it was one scene we had had uh, it was a uh, it was a party scene and the 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 crew was um, it was a big crew but it was a uh, it was a hot day uh, and he was watching people drag and it was you know people were getting a little crunchy and Bernie just picked up a microphone he just said the hell with the schedule picked up the microphone and literally did a forty five minute set. For all these people, I mean, I'm talking about extras, main actors, and everyone sat in, and he just, he put them all on a whole nother wavelength. It was unbelievable what he did, and just ran a 45-minute set. It was amazing. Wow. Very funny guy. Final question. Yeah. Um, what advice do you have for anyone around the world who is, it's a two-part question, who wants to be an executive in this business, wants to be behind the scenes really making shit happen um what do they need to do to get from where they are with nothing to get to where you are and the second part of the question is young artists all over the world who want to be in front of the camera and make their mark and get to the next level what do they have to do to get there and to move to that place that uh, you've seen so many of the people you've worked with get to. The, uh, the, 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 the actor or the performer part is, you know, it's a different time right now. So you actually have, you have the ability to put your work up on a, a platform like YouTube or Facebook. Uh, and, you know, you can literally, you can, you can send a tweet of a video down to someone that's going to actually watch it. And if it's really good, they could blast it out for you. So it's a little bit easier. I actually think now, 
uh, for some of those people if they're truly if they have true raw talent. Um, so back then, when we first started in this, and you too, there there was there was there, there were complete gatekeepers. It was a one to all communication, not one to one, and not one. To, it was there were commercials and there was programming and if you had to get through the door you had to really get through physically this door but you could actually do it at home now and you can blast it through and if it's damn good trust me someone will find it and they'll blast it out for you so that's one that's what i'd say on that side the other one to be on the on the executive front is i really believe that it comes down to you you have to really want it i know this seems corny but I was talking about punk and I could tell you, I, I still love to do these things. And I'm a, uh, you know, I'm an older guy now, but I still love to you're go to the field. You're an older guy. Now. So when I started, I did this in my, if you're you know. you're an older guy, then I'm in trouble. You are in trouble. <laughs> but the thing is, is uh, I it does start with a great passion. You have to understand who um, who I would call the forefathers of the game are. Don't walk into it and be naive. Know how the industry has gotten here. Know who these people are. Have respect and admiration. Always good to have goals. So who do you want to be? And I always look at it that way. Who do you want to be? If you could be anyone and you could mirror anyone, if you could spend six months of your life trailing and with someone, who would that be? Have a really good, clear idea of who that would be and that that that's really the you know that's the trajectory to take you have to have will compassion tenacity you've got to have a killer instinct on top of that you've got to have respect and you've got to you know it's a very fickle business and it's one that's built on relationships and talent and the ones that really make it have talent they really really do so that's it this has been amazing. Uh, I'm so grateful that you did the show. Uh, thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been another episode of Industry Standard. As Jason said, I will remember this until I die. If you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't, tell all your friends. They say it's the glory I'll scream your name and Put you on shoulders Walk you to fame You'll get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going far Life is for the dreamer they have all to gain It's never quite over So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave... 
please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.